Welcome back to the IFA podcast series. Um, and our topic today is one that interests many people. It is soil health. And by extension, also, we'll talk a little bit about soil carbon sequestration. What we want to achieve is uh, to maybe give you a little bit of an improved understanding of what it all means, because it's a topic that interests many also in the context of some big global discussions right now. We have the UM Food System Summit this year in which nature positive production plays a big role as a concept and soil health is seen as one of the pillars of that. We have the climate change of, uh, needs and mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions and carbon sequestration in soils is seen as one of the steps uh, to achieve this. But we also have later the UN Biodiversity Conference and soil health and soil biodiversity is also of great importance for many other biodiversity dimensions in the world. And nutrients, of course, play a significant role in this too. I'm very pleased that we have two outstanding uh, guests here uh, to tackle this topic today. So one is uh, Dr. David Paulson. Uh, David has a long experience in soil science um, and is currently a Laws Agricultural Trust Fellow at Rossumstead Research uh, in the UK. And then uh, we have uh, Dr. Joachim Lammel, uh, who also has a long research experience in similar areas, but more coming at it from an industry perspective. And he's currently the Vice President for Sustainability and Strategic Research um, at Yara, based at Yara Farming Solutions um, in Germany. So let's get going on this topic. And uh, I, don't want, I want to start with a question maybe to David first. So you've been involved in agricultural research for over 50 years, uh, 53 years to be precise, when you started your PhD. What, what, tell us a bit about soil health. So what, what is it actually? And where did this all come from all of a sudden? And didn't we call it something else in the past? How has it changed over time? And you know, why is it so popular nowadays? <laughs> Well, uh, that's quite interesting, I think. I mean, when I, when I was a very young soil scientist starting my career a long, long ago, people talked about soil fertility. Agronomists and people that I knew said, you know, soil is fertile and soil fertility was a very common phrase that was used. I think that was a very agricultural phrase. It focused on just the agricultural uses of soil and it perhaps focused very much on nutrients and perhaps didn't uh, give um, due um, credence to things like the physical properties of soil. So a bit later on, perhaps the 1970s, people started using the term soil quality. And this um, then sort of referred to both things more than just nutrients and the fact that some soils were not used for agriculture, but for forestry or that other ecosystem functions. Uh, so, But th that term was used quite a lot, but didn't specially catch on. Then more recently, we, we've heard of soil health. And I think, um, I think that perhaps has become popular for two reasons. One is because it perhaps implies more about the biology, whereas quality could include biology, but perhaps people didn't think that it did. And also, I suppose the word health think, thinks a bit about it's sort of parallel with human health. So, so it's sort of become popular from that point of view. I face in two directions about the term soil health. On the one hand, if it's good for communicating with people who are not soil specialists, whether they are you know, just fellow citizens, 
kings or politicians or policymakers, if it engages with them and helps them to realise that soils actually matter, whether they function matters, then good. I'm very happy with that. I do worry a bit when some of my colleagues seem to make it into a um, sort of almost like a huge scientific principle, because even when you talk about the health of a person, in a general sense, you can say a person is fairly healthy. But if you want to dig deeper than that and get into the sort of medical things, you've got to know if there's a problem, is it their heart, is it their breathing or, or whatever. So with soil, with soil health is a good introduction, but you then, if you want to go deeper and study the soil and put things right that are wrong, then you've got to look at the detail. Yeah, we'll come back to some of that, but it's a very good introduction. So, But I think it's good if people talk about soils instead of not talking about soils. You know? So, Joachim, why are fertilizer companies interested in soil health? Soil health is absolutely essential for farming. You know, and I'm talking about soils to support crop growth and to support farmers. And I think in addition to what uh, David said, that's Soils are also a habitat of numerous different organisms. And these organisms are all important for the different soil functions. And the word soil biome is often used to describe this community. And if we imagine the size of the soil biome, we could probably think about the quantity which is equivalent to an elephant. So if we assume that on one hectare, so soil biome has a, a quantity which is uh, up to a couple of thousand kilos, then we really know that it is important to maintain these uh, organisms in order to help to, uh, soils to stay in uh, the fertility stage, as uh, David explained. So crop nutrition and fertilizers play a significant role in, in maintaining soil health from that angle too, because you need to have nutrients in them, you need to have biomass and all of the other goodies. Yeah. So, But then when we think soil health, you know, I suppose we're actually, you know, may mean quite different things depending on what the purpose of the soil is and how it is being used, you know. So that, that's probably not a universal soil for everything, you know. So how would you define that in terms of, well, you know, the soils for different functions and what does this mean in, in, in measuring soil health? You know? no, I think your comment is absolutely to the point and that makes the discussion about soil health so, so, so difficult because soil health needs to be seen in the context of a specific soil function. If the soil is supporting a forest, for example, a healthy soil will have different features than a soil that is seen as healthy for an arable farm. And it is therefore very difficult to generalize criteria for soil health. And that is also, or as a consequence of this difficulty, soil health is not a term or a notion used in soil science. You know, from a scientific point, it is very difficult. It is more an emotional relationship to think about soil health. However, for, a, for farming and for the soil function to support crop growth and to help to feed the population, it is absolute necessity that the soil does not get depleted of the nutrients 
and therefore the addition of plant nutrients to a soil is a key necessity to maintain and to support soil health in a farming context. So basically, this requires that we measure the, the more practical functions of a soil in a reliable way. And there are, I think, it seems like quite a few new gadgets available for this. Do you see much hope that we are able to now do this more precisely in the future so that we can also manage the soil health according to the functions better? Yes, I was just going to add to what Joachim had said, that even within agriculture, we need different um, sort of functions and, if you like, soil health characteristics, even for different crops. If you're growing, say, lettuces, you need uh, different soil characteristics compared to if you're growing, say, winter wheat or grapevines or olives. So, So there is no such thing as soil health or soil quality in a vacuum, it's it's health or quality for a particular purpose and perhaps even particular type of crops. You know, and we're back to the different sort of things that you can measure. We can measure things like soil pH, is the soil too acid or too alkali? We can put that right with liming. What's the nutrient status? We, we can measure that in various ways and people have been doing that for a long time and we, you know, we, we gradually improve those measurements and also models to help us with those. We've now got the situation where we can, of course, measure various soil physical characteristics, the rate at which water will move into the soil when it rains heavily. And this is important from the point of view of soils being influencing um, uh, flooding or rather trying to control flooding, lack of flooding. Does the water run off or does it penetrate? But we now have a whole battery of methods for looking at the biology of soils. Uh, Joachim mentioned just measuring the total biomass of organisms in soil, a total quantity of carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus. We've been able to do that for, for quite a, a while. But we now have um, a whole bunch of uh, techniques based on DNA or RNA measurements. And so we can learn quite a lot about what organisms are present in soil and to some extent, which ones are active and which are not active at a particular time. Now, interpreting all that data can be quite difficult. And um, I worry a little bit that sometimes people say, oh, here's a wonderful new measurement. This will tell you everything you need to know. It's sure it's moving knowledge forward somewhat, but we need to understand all the interactions properly and not latch on to one sort of magic measurement that's going to tell us everything. I think I think there's a general view that a healthy soil is somehow teeming with earthworms and microbes of all kinds and is sort of a biological reactor that has a beautiful soil structure. Now, what that all means is often an interesting question in terms of how many earthworms and microbes do you really need for what? You could argue, well, there are systems which are almost sterile and are highly productive, you know, hydroponic culture, for example, but even sandy soils, <laughs> if you wish, with irrigation and fertigation can be extremely productive, yeah. So I think the message that we've heard is that uh, it depends on the purpose uh, and for the different purposes, we also perhaps need to have different measurements of the necessary soil functions and different tools to do this and be much more precise than getting lost in in general statements of what is healthy and what is not. Mm. If I could add to that, I mean, I think in general, getting more organic matter coming into the soil is always going to be good for the biology, um, for the earthworms and the microbes and so on. 
just to build on what you said, uh, David, there is an array of new methods, as you rightly said, but still, and that is what I find very interesting, most of the methodologies that describe soil health or these systems rely on the soil respiration of CO2. You know, the, the, the soil biomes, the com community of soil organisms feed on organic matter and by using these organic material as their feed, they release CO2. And so most methodologies relate a healthy soil to a soil that has a higher release of CO2 because it describes the size of the biome and the amount of respiration that will that takes place in the soil which is a pretty simplistic approach as given the, the array of methods that David just explained. So a healthy soil is one in which carbon and nitrogen and other nutrients are cycling through and being turned over quickly? Absolutely. And we may say the, the, the soil respiration is the opposite of the carbon sequestration which means that there could be a, a conflict in targets. You know, if you want to sequester a lot of carbon, the resp soil respiration, meaning also for some soil health, should be lower than in a, uh, in a condition where you want to have a maximum sequestration. So that, that makes, a, uh, I think, a nice transition to carbon sequestration as another uh, hot topic. So, but if I can summarize so far, what we've concluded is that a healthy soil can be quite different for different purposes. But in general, it's one that is active in terms of processes uh, and uh, it needs to be managed through practices that enhance the turnover of things. So, but when we come to carbon sequestration, then that has been uh, for years already promoted as a carbon farming measure among many others. So, uh, with the idea that if we somehow sequester more of the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in the soil, uh, then we should be able to uh, make a contribution to uh, global climate change. You know, so maybe uh, David, when when we think about this, uh, what what are sort of the, the what the dual dimensions of carbon sequestration? Because it's 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 probably not just that, but probably also other considerations from the soil point of view. Yeah, well, it's you know we we've understood for quite a long time that if you estimate the the quantity of carbon held in the organic matter of the soils across the whole of the globe, um, it's a very large amount. It's um, in the top one meter of soil is estimated to contain about twice the amount of carbon as there is in the CO2 in the atmosphere, and some estimates would make it even bigger than that, and about perhaps three times the amount that's in the um, in the vegeta global vegetation. So it's a very big stock of carbon that's there. And so the argument is that, that, well, it's true that that really matters at the global scale. So if we could somehow get more of the carbon that's in the CO2 in the atmosphere into the soil, that would be good for climate change. It would slow the increase in CO2 in the atmosphere, slow climate change. On the other hand, if we do things that release some of that carbon from the global carbon stock, it 
put CO2 into the atmosphere and makes climate change worse. So this is the um, the area that, that, that we're working in. Uh, and, and some very big claims have been made for how much carbon we could um, store in the soil. Now, it's quite tricky because um, just as, as Joachim was saying, when organic matter enters the soil, microbes break it down. And quite a lot of the carbon that comes in goes back to the atmosphere as CO2. And we want that to happen because what the microbes are doing is releasing nutrients, releasing things like polysaccharides that glue aggregates together. Those are the functions that we want in soil. But some of it, some of the carbon does stay behind, first in the cells of organisms, and then as the organisms die, get built into more stable forms of organic matter in soil, perhaps fixed to clays and so on. So this whole area is is quite a, a tricky one. A point about carbon sequestration to slow climate change is that if you're going to do, if we're to achieve that, we actually have to get more carbon coming into our soils than would otherwise have been the case if we're changing management in some way. Now, a very obvious and simple way of doing that is to take land out of agriculture and grow more trees or more grass. That for sure brings more carbon into the soil than would have been there before. Um, but of course, if you do that, you've got less land to grow food on. So you've got a big conflict there. In some years ago, I was actually quite enthusiastic about carbon sequestration to slow climate change because at that time, I'm going back 25 years, within the European Union, we had um, a set-aside scheme where some land, 5-10% of arable land, was taken out of production because it was perceived that we had overproduction of food. Now, we, we may have been wrong, but that's how it was at the time. So when that was the case, many of us said, well, if we're going to take land out of agriculture, let's do something useful with it. And if you put it, let's say, into forests, this is good for carbon, it's good for habitats for wildlife and recreation and so on. But now, of course, we're in a very different situation. We're worried about global food security. So taking large areas of land out of agriculture seems to me not a tenable thing that we can really do. Uh, so, but it, uh, it leads, I think, to the first conclusion, which is the first thing we need to do is preventing that more natural land is being converted into agriculture. That's the number one priority, probably, you know. And then perhaps the second priority is to prevent that we're losing more carbon from the existing agricultural soil. <laughs> and, and then maybe the third one becomes, okay, where it is feasible we might want to increase soil organic matter and sequester a bit of more carbon when we can. So, Joachim, when you look at this from a, from your point of view, where you live in Germany, for example, you know, and look at German agriculture as an example, you know, where what would be some realistic practices that could help to sequester a bit more carbon you know, compared to what farmers have already done until now? You know, what else could they do to to achieve that? You know? I think uh, standard or some practices would be, of course, in the sense of preserving carbon that exists in the soil. And then we have the entire category of measures regarding uh, tillage, like uh, no tillage, uh, direct seeding and so on, because all these ways to prepare the land have a strong impact on the carbon. Then in addition, of course, uh, to grow some um, catch crops where they are, can be placed in the in a crop rotation as intermediate crops to 
capture carbon and to uh, support soil fertility is an important point uh, also. But I also want to emphasize what you just said, uh, Akim, to avoid the conversion of arable land or farmland or natural land into farmland is absolutely key going forward. Today, the total greenhouse gas emissions from land conservation are estimated between 8 and 9% of the global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But agriculture is also faced with a challenge of global population growth. And that gives the conflict that uh, David just explained. But I believe or we believe that a sustainable intensification of agriculture is also a key measure as part of the solution. And we define sustainable intensification as to produce more food on the same land with less environmental impact. And that is how all targets, methodologies and technologies that are currently employed in agriculture should contribute to. Because we still are faced with a challenge that the po global population may grow to uh, 10 billion people in a not too far future. And all these people have their demands for food. And that is why I think it is really important to develop new technologies and to help to, to contribute to a healthy and uh, I would say fertile soils that would be able to support uh, these uh, growing population and by in any case to avoid any nutrient mining which would be very detrimental to soil health and to the target to produce enough food. So one of the questions that obviously comes up is uh, if you want to have uh, payment schemes for carbon sequestration and reward farmers for good practices uh, that could lead to this or other environmental services, then the question is, is it actually going to be feasible to easily verify these things, uh, particularly over a relatively short time? Or how would we go about this, David? It's going to be quite difficult because you're looking for fairly small changes in the amount of carbon in the soil against a big background. So this is this is difficult to do within a short time. You know, in in experiments, typically we might be looking at five years or even longer before you could really detect reliably detect a change. And you've got the variability within fields to uh, uh, to cope with as well. So actually, measure direct measurements for changes in soil carbon within agriculture soils is really very difficult indeed within a short time. There are a number of ways we could go about this. One is you could have some sort of monitoring sites where you look at different management practices and um, apply them to a, to a region. Secondly, you can use models. We do have computer models of soil carbon dynamics. They're not too bad. So these could tell you that if you do a certain management practice on a certain soil type within a particular cropping system, a particular climate, then we would the model would expect soil carbon to change a certain amount can do that and that might be an indirect way of doing it which is not too bad we have got new techniques coming along um, based on what's called infrared reflectance where you basically you measure almost the color of the soil and this could be done from drones even if you've got bare soil People are doing research on this and it's coming along, but I don't think it's there yet. And also those are only looking at the soil surface, whereas you've got to look at a much deeper uh, 
amount of soil as well. Yeah. Joachim, uh, what do we know from long-term experiments about you know, changes in soil organic matter or carbon? It's exactly as uh, David said. In the short term, it is extremely difficult to quantify carbon sequestration through agricultural practices. However, from the long-term trials, what we what most of the trials reveal is that there is a continuous and steady increase in soil organic carbon. It's slow quantities, but over decades it accumulates, provided that best practice crop management, including a good crop nutrition, is employed at the farm. Yeah. Well, I want to finish with a little role play and maybe surprise you guys a little bit. Uh, so we each pretend to be a farmer. So I'll be a rice farmer in the Philippines or Indonesia. David is going to be a, a smallholder farmer in a sub-Saharan African country with a sort of a mixed farm growing maize and other things on a sloping land. And Joachim is going to be a coffee grower in Costa Rica. So, and I'm going to ask you each, if you were that kind of farmer, what would be two or three good things you would do in terms of managing your farm that would convince yourself to say, yeah, I'm doing this also for my soil health. So while while you're thinking about this, I'll, I'll start by being the rice farmer. So, so I think the thing that I would focus on most is I would tell myself, okay, uh, my ancestors and I have been managing this uh, soil on the continuous rice cultivation, this flooded rice, for maybe a couple of thousand years already. You know, seems to be quite sustainable. It seems to do really well, and my soil seems to be quite healthy. So I just need to largely keep it that way. You know, so I should make sure that I reach. 80% of the yield potential possible because that creates a lot of biomass uh, and also biomass turnover in the field. So that means I need to manage my nutrients in a very precise manager way. I need to take advantage of the best varieties, plant at the right time and so on. So I, I need to close my yield gap and I need to achieve a very high level of uh, nutrition, nutrient use efficiency. I probably need to occasionally look at soil micronutrients uh, like zinc, you know, to replenish those, you know. I don't need to worry about liming uh, because that's not an issue in a flooded soil. I don't need to worry too much about organic matter. I'll use if I can get my hands on a bit of manure, but uh, it's not essential because the soil is flooded for the most part. And if I don't need it, uh, I will incorporate the rice straw. I think that's probably what I would do. So you, the coffee grower in Costa Rica, what would be your priorities? I think specifically if I think about soil health, I would aim to avoid with all my measures any depletion of the soil. So I think I would look at a proper return of the nutrients that are exported from the uh, field with the harvest. And I would think about organic uh, matter management. For example, if the trees are pruned, it would probably be a good idea to uh, leave these, uh, to chop these uh, trees, uh, these branches up and keep it on the soil to return the organic carbon or even to consider the husk or the of the cherries to be returned to the field and eventually also a green 
field with some in small crops of the rows in between the coffee trees so that there is a proper return of organic carbon and nutrients so that any soil depletion is avoided to maintain the soil in a good healthy and fertile status. Now, what do we do in Africa, David? <laughs> right. Well, if I'm growing maize, usually it's um, it's growing with quite wide spaces between the rows. I would try to get an intercrop there if I've got enough rainfall, if enough water, that is. Probably a legume intercrop. Um, this will give a bit of nitrogen in, in the longer term, and it will put some organic matter um, into the soil. Um, and it should uh, help to decrease erosion as well because it's giving some surface cover. Um, I would try to get my hand on some fertilizer. Fertilizers. There's all sorts of issues there, but that will give me better crops rather than very small crops with no fertilizer. I would have to check on the soil pH, see where the lime is needed. I would try to return my crop residues if I possibly can. On the other hand, I'm aware that either myself or my neighbors have got animals and they, they want to graze with their animals. So there could be a conflict there. If I could get hold of manure, I would try to use that. Um, and I will probably try to do the minimum amount of tillage I could get away with while still uh, controlling weeds. I think that's it, what it comes down to. And it sums up this discussion today very well. It comes down to some practical measures that are doable. Some of them have some trade-offs, you know. Uh, but in the end, that's what soil health is all about. You know, do what uh, is right to your soil in the specific circumstances for the specific purpose of how you want to use the land. I wish to thank uh, David and Joachim for joining us today. Uh, it's surely a topic that we'll come back uh, to occasionally and in more differentiated and specific ways. Thank you very much for listening in and uh, join us next time again. Thank you, Akim. Thank you.